When it comes to the written revelation of our Redeemer, have you ever taken the time to consider the long list of titles that we find in the Bible that, that provide us with several monikers for our Messiah? If not, then you might like to know that our Savior Jesus has actually been identified by several names which include Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not only that, but our Messiah has also been called the Logos, the Lamb of God, as well as the Lord, which is translated from the Greek word Kyrios. Jesus is known as the only begotten Son of God. He's also called the firstborn from the dead, as well as the advocate for those who trust in him. And while our Messiah is also called the mediator, the intercessor, and the Christ, he's also known as the kinsman redeemer. And the reason why is because he's the only one who's actually able to redeem sinners like us. Now, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the word redemption, it actually speaks of those who have been delivered from the debt that they owe. Not because they paid the debt, but because another person, a redeemer, has stepped up to settle that debt. Redemption is used in reference to the person who has been set free from captivity because their redeemer came and paid their ransom payment and and by which the, the person in captivity was set free. As we consider this concept of redemption and our need for a redeemer, we can rejoice in knowing that the Lord Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, and he is the one who has come to pay the ransom by which sinners are set free. Now, in order to prove my point, I'm happy to inform you that that the Lord Jesus actually revealed the nature of this redemption uh, here in our text today. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the revelation of redemption was initially revealed prophetically. Uh, Secondly, we'll learn that the revelation of redemption was revealed physically. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the revelation of redemption was revealed providentially. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's revealing the way that he came to redeem those who trust in him. And as, as you make your way to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, well, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the Lord Jesus was actually leading his disciples to the holy city of Jerusalem. And the reason why is because, well, the time had come for him to be crucified. As they drew near to the ancient city of Jericho, the Lord Jesus actually decided to stop and spend some time with his apostles. And it was at this point in time when he provided them with another prophetic promise about his messianic mission. With all this in in focus, uh, let's pick up our study of Luke chapter 18. I want to begin reading there at verse 31. Here Luke writes, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, We are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken." Now, here in these verses, we find Christ Jesus. He's presenting his apostles with yet another prophecy uh, about the reason for why they were headed to Jerusalem. You see, they weren't just going to Jerusalem because they were on vacation. No, there was a specific messianic mission for why they were heading to Jerusalem. And it might interest you to know here that according to Luke's account, uh, this was actually the third time that the Lord Jesus presented his uh, disciples with a prophetic promise about his death. In order to jog your memory, well, I'll remind you that it was actually in Luke chapter 9 where the Lord Jesus declares, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. That was Jesus prophetically pointing to the way that he would die. The second prophecy that Jesus presented about this, well, it's also found in Luke chapter 9. It's verse 44 where Jesus declared, let these words sink down into your ears for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now here in Luke chapter 18, we find Jesus presenting them with a third prophecy about his persecution, prosecution, crucifixion, and resurrection. As we consider all of these verses, there should be no doubt in our minds that the Lord Jesus already knew about the way in which he would die. 
He knew about his mission to provide redemption, the payment of the ransom by which sinners can be set free. And while I'm certain that the humanity of our Savior had received divine directions from his heavenly Father, we can also be sure that the Lord was well aware of every Old Testament prophecy which the Holy Spirit had previously revealed through the prophets according to the dispensation of divine revelation. In order to prove my point, let's take a closer look at the revelation of our Redeemer. If you would, uh, let's back up and begin reading once again. There in the middle of verse 31, here the Lord Jesus declares, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now, as we take a closer look at this verse, we must not fail to notice that the Lord Jesus here, he's promising to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies that pertain to the Son of Man. Who, who is this Son of Man that he's referring to? Well, for the sake of clarity, it'll help you to know that the title, Son of Man, was actually a messianic title that the prophet Daniel used when he described a vision that he was given about the ministry of the Messiah. This prophecy is actually found in Daniel chapter 7. It's there where the prophet Daniel declares, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Here in these verses, we find the prophet Daniel. He's describing this vision that he received while sleeping on his bed there in Babylon. And it's here in this vision where Daniel prophetically describes the everlasting dominion of a king who is like the son of man. This became a messianic title used by the Jews. And, and it might interest you to know then that we actually find this same title being used of Jesus Christ 88 times in the New Testament. 88 times in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is referred to as the Son of Man. Many times, Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man. And so when the Lord Jesus promised to accomplish, that he would be the one to accomplish all of the prophecies that point to the Son of Man, he was assuring his disciples that he is, in fact, the Redeemer who was revealed in that Old Testament prophecy presented by the prophet Daniel. Not only that, but Jesus is also the one who would fulfill the prophecy that the prophet Isaiah presented in Isaiah chapter 53. It's there where the prophet Isaiah declares, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken and they made his grave with the wicked. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now, as we consider the content of this incredible prophecy, uh, we can say with all certainty that Jesus Christ has fulfilled this messianic promise. Jesus Christ fulfilled Isaiah chapter 53. And not only that, but Jesus also accomplished the prophecy that King David presented in the 22nd Psalm where David declares, the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. That's right. Long before the, the, the death of the cross was even invented by the Romans, 
King David tells us that the Messiah would die having his hands and his feet pierced. And listen, Jesus is also the one who fulfilled the prophecy that Job presented in Job chapter 19, where Job declares this. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. Yeah, Job was pointing to the day when the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ would come and stand upon this earth. And listen, this is really just a scratch on the surface of all the messianic prophecies that Jesus Christ accomplished. As a matter of fact, according to one conservative count, the Lord Jesus has fulfilled at least 300 messianic prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, The scholar Alfred Edesheim, he informs us that he actually found 456 Old Testament verses referring to the Messiah and to the times of the Messiah. And then there's J. Barton Payne, who uh, claims to have found as many as 574 verses in the Old Testament that refer to the coming Messiah. So, so, I mean, whether we're talking about 300 prophecies or 456 prophecies or even 574, uh, the, the fact is this, the, the precise number of Messianic prophecies found in the Old Testament isn't as important as the fact that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of them. Jesus Christ has fulfilled all of the prophecies. He's accomplished all of the prophecies that pertain to the Son of Man. Now, with all this in mind, let's take another look at the prophetic promise that Jesus is making here in Luke chapter 18. Look with me once again there at verse 31. Here, Jesus again declares, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the son of man will be accomplished. That word accomplished? Well, it's translated from a Greek word, which speaks of a a process that's been completed. Uh, the same word was also used of something being finished or fulfilled. It's for this reason that the scholars who created the New International Version of the Bible, they render the words of Jesus in this way. We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. It's going to be accomplished. It's going to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And we can rejoice in knowing that Jesus has, in fact, fulfilled the prophecies that point to the first advent of our Savior. It's also interesting to note that the same Greek word that the Lord Jesus uses here, uh, you know, uh, as, as far as him accomplishing all of these prophecies, he, he used the same exact Greek word as he died upon the cross. To prove my point, hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, and let's turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 19. As you make your way to the 19th chapter of John's Gospel account, well, I should just spend a second pointing out here that the, uh, the Greek word, which was rendered accomplished or fulfilled there in, in Luke chapter 18, it's, it's now being used here in John chapter 19 as an accounting term in, in reference to the completion of a payment. That's exactly how the Lord Jesus is using this word as he uh, died there on the cross. As a matter of fact, look with me here at John chapter 19. I want to direct your attention there to verse 28. Here John tells us that Jesus, knowing that all things were now what? Were now accomplished. That the scripture might be what? Fulfilled. Said, I thirst. Now a vessel of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. According to John here, Jesus knew that the scriptures revealing the sacrifice of our Savior were finally being accomplished and fulfilled. And knowing that all of these prophecies were being accomplished, Jesus goes on to declare, it is finished. That word finished found there in verse 30 is translated from the same Greek word, which was rendered accomplished back in Luke chapter 18. What this means is that the Lord Jesus was assuring the crowd who were, who were there at the cross, he, he was assuring them that the prophecies that point to the sacrifice of our Savior were now complete. They were fulfilled. They were finished. And, and, and listen, I'll remind you that the same Greek word was used in reference to uh, the redemption that occurs when a debt is paid in full. Therefore, when the Lord Jesus declared, it is finished, 
He was actually informing his audience that the sin debt that we owe was paid in full there on the cross where Jesus Christ was crucified. Think about that for a moment. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, account paid in full. Now, now when you pay off an account, whether it's a credit card debt or whether it's a vehicle or whatever it is, once someone stamps on that bill, account paid in full, do you try to give them more money? Of course not. Do you show up the next day and, well, here's five more dollars? No. Account paid in full means it's, it's done. You don't owe anything else. And yet, how many people are still trying to bring a couple more dollars to Jesus with their works? I know you finished it there on the cross, but, but please accept this sacrament. Please accept this, this, this confession. Please accept this. Wait a minute. Is it finished or not? Is the account paid in full or not? Do we still owe more? Is it what Jesus did plus a little bit of what I do? Not according to Jesus. The account is paid in full. And as we consider the way that this redemption was first revealed in the prophetic word of God, we can rejoice in knowing that the revelation of redemption, which was initially revealed prophetically, was then fulfilled physically. This brings us to our second point, because listen, the revelation of redemption, which was revealed uh, prophetically in the pages of the Old Testament, was then carried out and fulfilled physically when Jesus Christ died on the cross. And with this as the focus, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 18. Here we find the Lord Jesus. He's describing the physical aspects of his sacrifice. Notice with me again, beginning at verse 31. Here we learn that Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. And now he begins to list off those things that are about to be accomplished. He says in verse 32, He will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Yeah, These are the prophecies that he's referring to. These are the things that he's saying he's about to go and fulfill. And in this way, we can see that the redemption, which was revealed prophetically, was then fulfilled physically. To prove my point, we should first notice that the Lord Jesus informed his followers that he would be delivered to the Gentiles. That word delivered? Well, it's translated from a Greek word, which in this context is used of those who are physically bound and handed over to the authorities. The same Greek word was also used of those who are imprisoned and judged and condemned and punished. And that's exactly what happened when the chief priests delivered the Lord Jesus to the Romans for a final judgment. It's for this reason that the scholars who created the New Living Translation, they render verse 32 in this way. He will be handed over to the Romans and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. Here in this verse, we find the Lord Jesus. He's prophetically assuring his audience that he would not only be arrested and handed over to the Romans, but he also informs his followers that the, uh, the Roman authorities would torment him both mentally and physically. And while it's true that Christ Jesus presented this prophecy a few months before even arriving in Jerusalem, it's also true that Jesus was indeed delivered to the Romans just as he prophetically promised. And he was mocked, and they did insult him, and they spit upon him. And the proof of this can be found in Matthew chapter 27, that's where the apostle Matthew tells us that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Here in these verses, we find Matthew recounting this day when the Roman soldiers fulfilled the prophetic promise that Jesus made there in Luke chapter 18. And just like Jesus had already described, the Romans did in fact uh, strip him and and they mocked him and they insulted him and they spat upon him. And, And in this way, we can see how the price for our redemption was not only revealed prophetically, It's not only something that was just revealed 
you know, there in the Old Testament, but, but it was fulfilled. The payment price for our redemption was accomplished physically by the Lord Jesus Christ. Further proof of my point is found there in verse 33 where the Lord Jesus prophetically declares they will scourge him and kill him and the third day he will rise again. Now the Roman scourge was a short whip made of two or three leather cords which were connected at the handle and these leather cords were then knotted with a number of small pieces of metal, typically zinc or iron attached at various intervals and some scourges even included a sharp hook at the end of the cords which is why these specific whips earned the name scorpion. According to historical data, the Romans would use this scourge uh, to, to thrash the back of the prisoner until the person was almost dead. Uh, they would beat them within an inch of their life. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. We find the gospel writers confirming the fact that Pilate took Jesus and scourged him before he was crucified. Jesus also assured his audience that the Romans would kill him, which of course was then accomplished there on the cross where he was nailed to the cross and eventually stabbed in the heart with a spear. And that's when he bled out blood and water showing that he had already passed away. Not only that, but the Lord Jesus also informs his audience that he was going to rise from the grave on the third day. And I have no doubt that this was a difficult prophecy for them to grasp. And, and, we can, and yet we can rejoice in knowing that the disciples of Christ would soon see that Jesus actually fulfills this prophecy, prophecy in a very physical way. In order to prove my point, let's consider the testimony that Paul presents in one of the epistles that he sent to the church in Corinth. If you would hold your place here in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. If you would, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As you make your way to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that Paul didn't become a believer until after the resurrection of our Redeemer. He wasn't one who followed Jesus Christ and, and, and believed in him the whole time. No, no, no. He became a believer after the death, after the burial, after the resurrection, and after the ascension of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul was actually a religious Pharisee during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And, and as such, you know, he became committed to the persecution of Christians. But then came the day when he found himself face to face with our risen Lord. And it was at that point in time when Paul began to confirm the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We find one of those confirmations here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 1, here Paul declares, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Here in these verses, we find Paul confirming the fact that Christ Jesus physically died for our sins, and all of this was according to the scriptures. According to the Old Testament prophecies, these things were fulfilled. Not only that, but Paul also confirmed the fact that Jesus was buried and that he physically rose up on the third day according to the scriptures. And as we consider the long list of eyewitnesses that, that Paul presents here, coupled together with the testimony of Paul himself, who became a, a Christian after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, we can be certain then that the revelation of our Redeemer was not only prophetically revealed in the Old Testament, but the revelation of our Redeemer was also revealed physically through the physical death, the physical burial, and the physical resurrection of our Redeemer. What's even more than that? Well, the revelation of our Redeemer was also revealed through the physical ascension of our Savior. And in order to prove my point, let's take some time to consider Luke's account of our Savior's ascension. If you would continue holding your place there in the Gospel of Luke, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Acts. I'd like you to turn to Acts chapter 1. 
You see, it's here in Acts chapter 1 where we find Luke. He's now recounting the day of our Savior's ascension into heaven. And as we consider the way that Christ Jesus physically ascended into heaven, according to Luke's testimony, there should be no doubt in our minds that our Redeemer has physically accomplished our redemption. Let's consider how Luke puts it here in Acts chapter 1. Look with me there, beginning at verse 1. Here Luke writes, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was, what? Taken up. That's a reference to his ascension. The former account, speaking of the book of Luke, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of those things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Here in these verses, we find Luke, he's describing the way in which our risen redeemer physically presented himself to his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. For 40 days, he presented himself with many infallible proofs. For example, it's in John chapter 20. There, there we find the Lord Jesus approaching, uh, uh, what the, you know, he's the apostle Thomas. Many call him doubting Thomas. I, I personally like to call him highly skeptical Thomas. He, he was skeptical after hearing about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and insisted that he wouldn't believe until he had uh, the opportunity to examine the evidence for himself. And, and before he knew it, Jesus was standing in front of him saying, go for it. Check out the nail prints in my hands. Look at the spear wound in my side. It was at that moment when doubting Thomas became believing Thomas. For 40 days from the time of his physical resurrection until the day of his ascension into heaven, Jesus presented his followers with many infallible proofs. And one reason why? Well, it's because, you know, if, if you see someone that you watched die or know that they died and were buried and, and, and you see them after the fact, you're thinking, man, what's wrong with me? And I get it, you know, most people believe that Elvis and Tupac are hanging out somewhere together. But the fact of the matter is this, that Jesus Christ provably died. He was stabbed in the heart. I, I don't know if you've ever been stabbed in the heart before. But you tend not to recover from a stabbing in the heart. You bleed out within seconds. Jesus was provably buried in a known grave. And yet on the third day, was presenting himself with many infallible proofs for 40 days. Before physically ascending into heaven. From this we see that the revelation of redemption was first revealed prophetically there in the pages of the Old Testament. And then the revelation of redemption was revealed physically through the physical death, the physical burial, the physical resurrection, and the physical ascension into heaven. Thirdly and finally, I want to consider how the revelation of redemption was revealed providentially. And to prove uh, and to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to Luke chapter 18. Here we find Luke. He's reminding his readers about, you know, the uh, inability of the disciples to understand all of these things. And with this as the focus, let's take another look there at verse 31 here. I'm sorry, uh, if you would look with me at verse 34. Here Luke tells us that they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Now, as we consider Luke's description of, of the disciples here, it's important to realize that, you know, these guys weren't just kind of like wondering what, what are these words coming out of the mouth of Jesus Christ? You know, they, they fully understood the words, what they meant. They, they were able to understand the sentences and, and the things that Jesus was saying. They just didn't comprehend the statements that our Savior was sharing with them. 
Uh, They didn't have comprehension of these things. And one reason why is because of their failure to embrace all of the Old Testament prophecies. The fact is that the Bible, as I've already pointed out, is filled with at least 300 Old Testament prophecies. Some point to a, a Messiah who will rule and reign from the throne of David. Other prophecies point to a suffering servant who would die for our sins. And the Jews there in the first century, much like the Jews today, love to focus in on the prophecies about the ruling reigning king who will govern over the people of Israel with an everlasting kingdom. Yeah, that's the Messiah they want. That's the Messiah they're waiting for. And and so the, the first century Jews who heard Jesus talking about going to Jerusalem to die and then rise again, they, they, they have no understanding of this because it didn't fit within their theology. They thought that Jesus was going to Jerusalem so that, that, that he could claim the throne of King David and they were all going to be, you know, having a wonderful time. So because of their preconceived idea about how the Messiah would come and do his thing, they didn't get it. But at the same time, We should also notice what Luke said there in the middle of verse 34. Here again, we learn that this saying was hidden from them. Now that word hidden was translated from the Greek word crypto, which is the root of our English word cryptic or encrypted. What this means then is that the disciples didn't fully comprehend the prophetic promise of Jesus. And not only because, you know, they didn't have a full understanding of Old Testament prophecy, but also it's because the information was hidden or concealed from their comprehension with some sort of spiritual encryption. Now, how does the Lord reveal and conceal something at the same time? I don't know. He's telling them exactly what's about to happen and yet it's somehow hidden from them. I can't make sense of that. But what we can say for certain is that our Redeemer revealed this information according to his providential plan. What do I mean by that? Well, with this question in mind, I want to consider something that the Lord Jesus said when he informed the disciples that he had a providential plan which would help them to better understand the mysteries of the gospel. And with this as the focus, if you would, let's turn our Bibles to the gospel of John. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 16. And as you make your way to the 16th chapter of John's gospel account, I just want to take a moment to point out that the word providence, you know, when we talk about God providentially doing something, that word providence speaks of the divine power and influence by which almighty God sustains and guides human destiny. And it's here in John 16 where we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually promising to provide his disciples with providential guidance, which would come from the Holy Spirit at the point in time when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. And with all this in mind, if you would look with me here at John chapter 16, we'll begin reading at verse 7. Here the Lord Jesus declares, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father." Now, here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus. He's actually informing his disciples about the day when the Holy Spirit would be poured out and then begin to provide them with divine guidance so that they could finally receive the truths that they weren't able to bear prior to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, for example, you know, prior to the death of Jesus, the details about the sacrifice of our Savior were crypto or encrypted, hidden from them. 
But then after the Holy Spirit was poured out there on the day of Pentecost, that's when the disciples were finally able to begin comprehending everything that Jesus taught them during the days of his earthly ministry. To prove my point, I would direct your attention to John chapter 14. It's in John 14 where Jesus declares, these things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. In other words, the the Holy Spirit was being sent so that the disciples of Christ could remember everything that Jesus taught them. And not only that they would remember it, but the Holy Spirit was also sent to provide them with the comprehension that was lacking when they heard what Jesus said. You know, prior to the days when, uh, you know, uh, uh, prior to the, the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the, the Lord Jesus had presented them with many doctrinal details that we find in the four Gospels. And yet, as we see in our text today, they weren't able to comprehend or understand these things because it was encrypted. But then the Holy Spirit was sent to provide them not only with a remembrance of what Jesus taught, but also the ability to comprehend it. The Holy Spirit was sent to provide them with divine guidance uh, so that the revelation of redemption might be revealed providentially, which means, you know, at, uh, according to God's plan and at the appropriate time. In order to further grasp the point that I'm, I'm wanting to make here, I want to consider what Peter says in his first epistle. So if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. And as you make your way to the first chapter of Peter's first epistle, so I want to take a moment to remind you that Christ Jesus uh, is actually referred to as the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth. Now, why is that important? Well, think about it for a second. If Christ Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundations of the earth, and what this means is that the Lord, in his providential wisdom, looked down the corridor of time, knew that mankind would need salvation, that, that, that mankind would need a redeemer, and so decided before creating the universe that the Son would come and offer himself as a sacrificial lamb so that we might be saved. This was all decided prior to the creation of the universe. How mind-boggling is that? That's why Jesus is the lamb that was slain from the foundations of the earth. And yet it's also important to understand that this plan of redemption wasn't fully revealed until the beginning of the church age when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. To prove my point, let's consider how the Apostle Peter puts it here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look with me there, beginning at verse 10. Here Peter declares, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. Here in these verses, we find the Apostle Peter describing the way that the prophesied plan of redemption, which was hidden from the understanding of of those prophets who had testified in advance about the sufferings of Christ Jesus and and the glories that would follow. Yeah, they were writing down these prophecies, and, and yet I don't know that they fully understood that they were writing down prophecies about the Messiah because these things were in some way hidden from them, though they were the ones writing them. Well, it's true that the prophecies of our Redeemer were revealed through these prophets. These prophecies were encrypted in such a way that, that even angels struggled to understand God's plan. Think about that for a moment. The angels desired to look into these things. Now, why would God have to reveal and conceal this information from the angels? Well, you know, there's fallen angels, right? And if they fully grasp God's plan to provide redemption for sinners, well, then it would be easier for them to get in there and disrupt it. And what if the Israelites fully understood these prophecies and how they'd be played out? Would they have crucified Christ? Would they have handed him over to the Romans? Would they have falsely accused him? So this, these things were revealed while simultaneously being concealed so that they might be fulfilled 
according to the providential plan of our Savior. This is precisely the point that the Apostle Peter makes in 2 Peter chapter 1, where he declares, We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word, confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Simply put, the Old Testament prophecies, which were encrypted prior to the church age, have now since been confirmed after the fact by those who were there to witness the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. And as we consider the way that the Holy Spirit has providentially revealed the Lord's plan of redemption, both through the Old Testament prophecies, but then bringing that confirmation to the minds of the apostles, we can then rest in knowing that the prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled will also be revealed according to the providential plan of our Redeemer. Yeah, you might not know this, but there are still prophecies that are to some degree encrypted. Now, with this as the focus, I want to consider a warning that Paul presents to a group of pastors who came in from Ephesus. And if you would, let's turn in our Bibles now to Acts chapter 20. And as you make your way to the 20th chapter of Acts, I just want to take a moment to point out that there are still several prophecies that are providentially encrypted until the Lord uh, you know, decides to reveal this information. And one example is found in the fact that the, there are prophecies that point to the rise of the Antichrist that are still somewhat encrypted. I mean, we know that there will be an Antichrist who will rise up, but we don't know who he is. That information is encrypted. And not only that, but the day when the church will be raptured, that that information has also been encrypted according to the Lord's providential plan. We know that there's a rapture of the church that's coming. We just don't have any information on when it's going to happen. Sadly, though, this hasn't stopped a, a flood of false teachers from insisting that they've somehow figured it all out. Listen, whether we're talking about the false teachers who insist that they know who the Antichrist is, because, you know, you take the number 666, and, you know, you divide it by three, and, you know, for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then you backward, uh, you know, backward engineer this, uh, this answer so that you find out that, oh, it's Ronald Wilson Reagan, right? Ah, wrong. Oh, oh, it's, it's, uh, it's Biden, right? Oh, it's Putin. Oh, no, it's Zelensky. Be careful with these people who want to come along and tell you that they got into the Bible codes and did some geometry and figured out in the Greek and the Hebrew the numbers that correlate to 666, and now we can know that it's this guy or that. Those guys, those gals who teach these things shouldn't be trusted. And how about those who would lead us to believe that they've somehow discovered the secret codes in the Bible for decrypting the encrypted data that enables them to calculate the day of the rapture? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I can assure you that those who are currently filling the internet with their claims and their calculations will soon be exposed as false teachers, just like those who insisted that there were 88 reasons to believe that Jesus Christ is going to rapture the church in 1988. Let's see, what is it, 2022? But yeah, all these people you know, truly believed because someone wrote a book and did some math and they crunched the numbers and they carried the one and they figured out, oh, 1988. Oh, the, more specifically, the Feast of Trumpets, 1988. And they had 88 reasons to prove it. And yet here we are. And there's people doing the same thing today. The spirit of Harold Camping lives on. And these people will continue to make predictions and sell their books to gullible Christians who don't really understand that this information is encrypted. Stop watching their videos on YouTube. Stop buying their books because they don't know what they're talking about. It's a waste of our time. Let's consider Paul's warning found here in Acts chapter 20. I'll draw your attention there to verse 26. 
Here Paul declares, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's assuring the pastors who were serving there in Ephesus. He's informing them that he had already provided them with the whole counsel of God. In the Greek, what that actually says is that he provided them with the whole counsel of God. Not some, not a portion. But by the time he's speaking to these pastors from Ephesus, that he had already provided them with the whole counsel of God. The full counsel that Christians need for the church age was providentially provided through the teachings of Paul, which can then be found in his epistles, and this was fulfilled by 57 AD. Now, I'm not discrediting you know, the, the writings of John and the writings of James and the writings of Peter and the writings of Jude, and all those books are important as well. But they don't add to what Paul had already given to the church by 57 AD. We have the whole counsel of God. Seeing how Paul had already informed us through his letters to the church in Thessalonica, he had already informed us that the Antichrist will not be revealed until after the restrainer is removed, which corresponds with the rapture of the church. Therefore, the identity of the Antichrist will not be revealed until after the rapture. And so anybody who tells you that they figured it out and they can tell you who it is, Either they're confused or they're lying to you. We've already received the whole counsel of God and I've searched it and there's no name for the Antichrist here. And listen, the false teachers who rise up and deceive those who, by trying to tell us that they've figured out the date of the rapture, because they figured out in the geometria how to use numbers that correspond with letters in the Greek and the Hebrew, and they've done all these calculations, and here's their whiteboard full of information. That Be careful with all that, because I've searched the whole council provided by Paul, and I find no explicit date for the rapture of the church. And if there's no explicit date for the rapture of the church... Don't tell me what you found in the Bible codes. I'm not interested. It's a waste of my time. When is the rapture of the church? Whenever God decides. According to his providential plan. And as we're heading up, if it should happen in our lifetime... That's when we'll be like, oh, there, oh, there it is. That, it just happened. But I encourage you to be careful with these teachers who are rising up from within our ranks. Leaders who are rising up from within the church and not sparing the flock of God, deceiving them with information that God is not revealing at this point in time. Now, don't get me wrong, because I'm all about speculating about all of these sorts of things. I love to consider, you know, the, the, the evidence for, you know, why we might believe this versus that. And, and I love looking at eschatology and, and just considering all of these things. One of my favorite 
you know, studies through the scriptures as eschatology and end time events and, and, and just considering, you know, the, the uh, you know, different kinds of descriptive details about who the Antichrist is and, and what he's going to do and these sorts of things. And, and it's fun to go, it might be that guy or it might be that guy. All that is fun and, and, and worthy of time. Jesus Christ told us that we ought to know the signs of the times so that we understand the days that we're living in. But be careful when false teachers rise up and try to tell you that they have information that's not found explicitly. They're trying to convince you to believe that they have some special Gnostic knowledge that God didn't just put plainly in the pages of the scripture. We have the full counsel of God's word. And we don't need secret Gnostic hidden information until God chooses to reveal it. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to remind you that our Redeemer has revealed everything that we need to know about his plan of redemption. You want to know about the the revelation of redemption? Read through the epistles. And get to know what, what you know, the writers of the epistles have written about the redemption that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided. Spend time studying the Old Testament prophecies because the revelation of redemption was first revealed prophetically. And this in the pages of the Old Testament. The revelation of redemption was also revealed physically through the death, burial, and resurrection and the, the ascension of our Savior. And finally, we we can rejoice in knowing that the revelation of redemption has been revealed providentially according to the dispensation of information that the Lord determined to reveal according to his perfect plan. While it's true that there are many, many, many things that we still don't yet comprehend about God's plan for the future, we can still say with all certainty that the Lord Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. The Lord Jesus has come to provide the full ransom payment by which we are set free from sin. And those who will simply receive by faith this free gift of grace by which we are redeemed can rejoice in knowing that we are now resting in the finished work of our kinsman redeemer. Let's pray.